Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ here with Mike. And this is and this is Mike, and this is our, I guess you'd call it our silver episode. Episode 25. Silver, excluding wow. the interview episodes, uh, three of which we have. For yeah, regular so episodes, 20, this is, uh, yeah, 25. This is our silver. 25th regular episode. I guess episode one would be a regular episode too, even though it's like, what is it, half an hour or 45 minutes or something? It's yeah, really I like short. that one because we just uh, sat down and did it without a plan and- um, and we're still doing that today. How about yeah. that? How about that? No, we have a little <laughs> Actually, bit we have plan. settled into a kind of mold that we occasionally break, but yeah, I guess I guess Basically it's okay. Basically, have a format. Um, yeah. And well, Hello World still gets some downloads every week. If you want to find out the genesis of this program and who we are, you'll have to go back and check that out if you haven't heard it yet. Yeah. You could hear how lame we were back in February. I don't think it was that bad, was it? But uh, I don't, well, I, I expect that like once we if we if we actually get three or four years into doing this, we'll we'll actually sound pretty slick, and then we'll look back at all these episodes with embarrassment or and a little bit of uh, nostalgia. You know, could be nostalgia. Well, as yeah. we were just talking, you know, before right. we started today, you know, the uh, danger of overthinking things. No. Uh, overthinking things. If we had planned things out too much, we may have never gotten started. So that day we just decided, uh, yeah. you know, we're just going to sit down and do it. And so, yeah, yeah, we cranked up the eight track and uh, sat face to face and just did it. So, yeah, I, I got to say though, um, I, I've noticed that occasionally I've uh, come into this, uh, certain recordings I come into this without much of a plan or without any notes. And those usually don't go as well as the ones with notes. Although occasionally there'll be some comment that's okay. I don't know. Yeah. As long I as I don't read the notes, it's good. You know, so I can oh, okay. look at them and say, okay, I want to hit this point, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I've been in the habit of taking a lot of notes. Uh, and then sometimes yeah. I look at all the notes. <laughs> that was, yeah. That's too many notes, you know, too yeah. many things to write about something. But You know what came in the mail just uh, last week for me? What'd you get? I got the uh, new recording of uh, Beethoven's opera Fidelio. With Ooh. Lisa Davidson on it, the oh, nice. mega, that big, big voice. tone soprano, that huge the big voice, voice. Yeah. and I'm very curious to hear this. Now we're not going to do this on the show because uh, getting <laughs> getting Russ to listen to an opera would require me to 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 get him a few bottles of booze. But <laughs> yeah, I think but but I'll comment on it when I finally do hear it. I'll just make a little. You know, I'll tell you what I thought. Took I haven't me a couple heard weeks it yet. To I got to sit down. Yeah, but the thing is, I've got to sit down with the libretto and give it a listen and kind of see. I'm not, you know, it's funny. I'm not really familiar with that opera, and yet it's it's Beethoven. You know, you kind of think you know right. all of Beethoven, but the, and somehow this opera never really came my way. You know, I never got a chance mm -hmm. to see it. You know, I haven't listened to it much because I was more interested in like Verdi or Mozart or things like that. So I don't know. I'm gonna, it, it'll be good. I'll get. I'll kind of become more familiar with it. I like that. I like being familiar with. Um, the big works, you know, the central works in the uh, in the repertoire and the uh, culture, and anything right. Beethoven did is pretty uh, major. Even Wellington's Victory, even though it's terrible, but it's just kind of a, yeah, you know, he did it, so we have to hear it, I guess. Well, I don't give know. me enough advance notice if we're going to do it, especially if it's got well, sopranos on it, because then yeah, but I'll now, need to. but now that you said that, now I'm thinking, oh, now I have to send it your way. I was just going to mention oh. it, you know, say, okay, I heard this and it was like this, so I don't know. Okay, I've got other stuff to. So, you know, I don't have much uh, vocal stuff coming up. It's all instrumental, really. So. Okay. I like I to, know. you know, I don't know, call me a male chauvinist, but I'll go for the baritones and tenors. The male voices are easier for me. I don't know what it is. Maybe I have some sort of 
inner ear thing where the soprano voice really gets my my head ringing if I well, listen to Well, the lower voices, including things. like uh, mezzo-sopranos and altos and women's voices have like a, a, a kind of a color to them. They have like yeah. a like a duskiness or sort of like, you know, some kind of like timbre that you can identify it as their voice where sopranos just kind of sound like birds. <laughs> they just, they're really high. <laughs> they're like it's kind of like white sort of, you know what I mean? There's no real kind of like, you know, I suppose, yeah, stain I guess to it that makes it unique. You I know, it's it's usually that comes in the phrasing and stuff like that. The same way I feel about, you know, violin versus cello. I, I can listen to a lot longer uh, time, scale of yeah. cello works than I can violin uh, before right. I get sort of fatigued from them. And uh, the cello, I find, you know, more closer to, you know, usual human voice tones. And so, you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw this out to the listeners. If anybody out there wants us to do like a normal full, you know, normal review of the new Beethoven re the recording of Beethoven's Fidelia with Lisa Davidson on it, send us a uh, message and we'll do it. Otherwise, yeah, you, I'm just going to say what I thought of it. I'm going to have to ask for with it. it. Um, you got to ask for it, okay? Because opera is kind of like a uh, – especially these days, a lot of operas recorded – this one is actually a studio recording on CD, which interested me because that's how I learned opera, by learning a – you know, I, I used to see operas at the Met in New York a lot. Um, right. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you could go in there like for free or for like 20 bucks and stand, you know, and so I got to do a lot of those back in the day when I was uh, in my 20s living in New York. But – um Another, I learned a lot of them by, you know, recordings, by CDs. But these days, they all come out on, um, like, Blu-ray disc or DVD. So, you have a video component to it, too. Now, part of the problem with that is um, that you don't get – you can have subtitles, but you don't have the libretto. So, you don't really know who everyone is. You got So, it's kind of a good idea to go through it with the libretto first and then maybe watch – if you don't know the opera. And then then watch the Blu-ray, you know, like turn right. the video off the first time with the libretto, which you don't, which you have to have from another disc. Or I have a book in the back, a thousand one opera librettos, like all the big ones, you know. Right. Uh, so I can I can look at that if I if I need to. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of work watching an opera to be prepared, <laughs> prepared for yeah. the experience. Yeah. Well, before we get into uh, this week's program, I want to remind our listeners. That in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. And at the top of the description, there's also a link to the full episode playlist. That's all mm. the music in one place on Deezer, our preferred uh, streaming app. Uh, although I just found out something today. I'm behind the news. I'll talk mm. about that in a minute. But uh, we're on Deezer. Uh, you can follow us there at uh, username Adult Music Podcast. And uh, also you can listen to the podcast there and then find the full playlist with all the music in one place. Uh, if you don't see that on the description on whatever app you're uh, looking at, because some apps don't uh, include the hyperlinks in the description, you can jump on over to our host Podbean, where everything is uh, easy to follow and uh, nice and concise. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you take a moment uh, to give us a ranking, or a few more minutes to write a review, we'd appreciate it because that will help us get listed in the browsing category and uh, help us rise above all of the endless K-pop 
podcast that came to be <laughs> coming out like spores from a mushroom or something uh, would help us grow our audience. And we'd like that. Uh, otherwise, if you'd like to contact us directly uh, about uh, Mike's uh, opera proposal or any other comments or questions that you might have, our email address is adult music podcast. That's all one word at uh, gmail.com. And we'd love to hear yeah. from you. If we're ever going to review like a, a Blu-ray opera, you're going to have to like come over and watch it with me. Yeah, you know? come over and watch it with us. And you're going like, to have to bring the booze. We can't just share stuff on Deezer. Oh my yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> it's too much. No, but I, right, uh, about- what I noticed was that, uh, you know, the main reason I jumped to Deezer after using uh, Apple Music for a while, because Apple Music was compressed, but I realized that uh, back in June, I think it was, they went to a full uncompressed uh, CD quality on, on Apple Music now. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. How about uh, that? Yeah. That's why we went to Deezer because they had like they have high def too. Don't yeah, they? yeah, they, yeah, they do. And Apple has well, I think they have uh, twenty four bit and forty eight k. I mean, at mm. our age, we're not going to hear those high frequencies. And there's nothing even in classical music that has. Uh, I gotta say though, I don't miss the high frequencies much. I would miss the low stuff because I, I like that. But I want—I I don't need to hear the very the piccolo, like the the higher like uh, yeah. harmonics of the piccolo or anything like that. Because the piccolo is piercing enough, I can hear it. You, you know? just need better. <laughs> you just need b- better speakers. You don't need uh, the high res recordings, but. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. Life does kind of cheat you that way because you have your best hearing when you're in your twenties, and yet you're you're more discerning musically as you get older because as you hear more and more music, right? So you're kind yeah. of um, you get familiar with it. You sort of know the repertoire. You hear more, and yet you're actually physically hearing less of the whole sound that's being made. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really odd. I guess maybe the maybe the advantage that the uh, good Lord gave us is we don't hear those high frequency shriekings that uh, yeah. some people make. You know, makes it easier yeah. to ignore some of those harpies <laughs> and things like that. So no, the harpies are important sometimes, though. Yeah, or the or the shrieking bats. I'd like I'd like to tell listeners another little here's an adult music podcast secret for you. When Russ and I trade uh, our picks for the week. Uh, we do this on Deezer, and when I send him the my classical picks on Deezer, I put them. I don't just send them directly to him. I send them to the Adult Music Podcast. All all people following the podcast on Deezer, which right now is nobody. No, so there's I, two. I, so I, oh, there's, there's two? two. Oh, so they're there's, getting these well, uh, recordings in advance. They know what we're going to do the week uh, before. So no, you I should can do say, that. You know, I should say that uh, we don't know how many mm. people follow the podcast because Deezer doesn't share that. But uh, people who follow the list of the uh, songs are two on there. So. On Podbean or on Deezer? On Deezer, yeah. Oh, so because when, so when I send that to all followers, you know, at the beginning of the week, they know what we're going to do a week in, in advance. That's right. Can listen That's to right. Them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so and you I, can do that on Deezer. We can't do that anywhere else because I think I'll go crazy, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but on Deezer, you can, you can actually yeah. hear what we're going to talk about the next week. As soon as Mike shares yeah. it. And then I put those together with the jazz ones and those come out uh, usually Monday or Tuesday. I have it all put together. So uh, I like it because it helps me uh, just one click. I can find it to listen to things during the week. So next week I've already got like a a theme uh, going, but I'm not really sure what's going to be included in what recordings I'm going to use in that theme, but I already know what the theme is. It doesn't have anything to do with topless mermaids or anything, does it? Um, Depending on how you think about it, it could. Oh, but, I don't know why I said that, but I just had this yeah, vibe. But, uh, you know, so. It depends on how you kind of, oh, okay. you know. <laughs> well, I'm eager to hear about on, that. It yeah. depends on the angle you approach it at, I guess. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> in a nautical kind of frame of mind. but Yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah. Guys are really into mermaids. I don't know. I don't. I don't think I dig being with a mermaid very much. Kind of scaly, but yeah, and they were kind of. They live in the ocean. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't dig that much. Probably not. Yeah, I don't like boats all that much anyway. So yeah, there you go. I kind of give me give me a give me a land woman any day. <laughs> well, let's go to a landlocked uh, kind of thing to start out tonight. Then um, I guess we just should start here. Uh, because uh, this goes back to our last, actually our first, but most recently released interview. Uh, okay, we're going to change the order this week. Usually we go right. in the order of uh, composition, but we have kind of like a special sort of uh, thing tonight. So go ahead, you can introduce yeah, this Yeah, so one. following up on volume one uh, tonight, we'll start out with volume two of Brunitsky Orchestra Works. And uh, this volume two is called Symphonies. Uh, the first volume had some symphonies, and we discussed that uh, back uh, a few months ago. And that led to our interview with uh, Daniel Bernardson and the conductor that's featured in this recording, uh, Marek Stilitz of the Czech Chamber Philharmonic Orchestra, Parvodice. Uh, this recording's <laughs> uh, volume... By the Go way, ahead. are we saying his name right? Because he even told us how to say it. Yeah, it's a <laughs> sure. it's, it's uh, still it's? the S with the whatever that okay. thing the C is with called. The accent the, the over, and yeah. the C is so it's uh, If you listen to this, Marek, like uh, if we're still okay. not saying it right, forgive us. Uh, <laughs> but I, I believe that's it, Marek Stiditz. And uh, mm -hmm. it's volume two of what we hope will be an extended series on Naxos. And I know Daniel will be listening to this. So uh, let, let me just say, what, can I just say what should be an extended series yeah, uh, yeah, it of, absolutely of his should music? Be. Because there's some... This is all really good music. Okay? Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's it's kind of an exciting uh, discovery, you know, to be hearing this um, classical era, you know, Mozartian type kind of uh, music, you know, that's just all new to our ears. It's really great. Yeah, uh, um, and we enjoyed Volume One, but I think I like this one even even more. Yeah, and, I do too. We'll get into this uh, in yeah. a minute. And uh, with yeah. thanks for uh, to Daniel for contacting us, and then. Uh, setting up the interview and getting Marek involved and then you know, turning us more on to what's uh, here and the potential for this music. Uh, you have to check out uh, that interview and then our previous review uh, if you haven't uh, caught up on this. But basically, Ranitsky is uh, a, a composer in the uh, classical period who is, you know, on the level of Mozart and Haydn and a contemporary, also respected by Beethoven. But as history only tends to remember uh, two or three names from any period, uh, his works were neglected. And in the modern recording areas, uh, era, rather, uh, overlooked until now. And now, uh, thanks to... Uh, yeah, I think, I think you can blame the romantic composers for this because, like, they kind of set up the whole idea of the repertoire and then, like, yeah. everybody else just sort of yeah. got eliminated. Music, even music like Mozart and uh, Bach were just being, were seen as disposable until right. um, the, uh, until Mendelssohn really uh, started this yeah. whole idea of, like, uh, reviving the past Beethoven, too. I mean, he might have suffered the same fate, but the romantics admired him so much, they made sure he stuck around. And then they kind of reintroduced Bach and, Mozart and Haydn, and and then a handful of guys. They're all they're all guys too. Yeah, we'll get into that in a future too. They just kind of wound up being like the only music people listened to, aside from what was new, until really the '80s when things started to open up quite a bit. A lot of research started um, 
yeah. uh, happening. And we started learning about all these composers that uh, that were pretty good, and then weren't necessarily the great geniuses of the uh, of the um, you know of of the West. But uh, so what? I mean, they still made really good music. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I have to say that yeah. Ranitsky has a lot to offer, and that's yeah. shown very well in this recording. And uh, yeah. it's a nice sounding recording too. Uh, this volume two uh, is mostly symphonies, but it begins with an overture, uh, Der Schreiner. Hmm. And uh, this was uh, pretty enjoyable to open up. I really like the playful melody and the way... One thing I noticed in uh, volume one and volume two is Wernitsky is really good at creating contrasting sections of uh, you know instrumentation. And he works the different sections of the orchestra really well. Also with the difference, uh, contrast in dynamics. And uh, in this overture, you'll get a nice contrast in the soft dynamics of the string melody uh, with the winds. And I thought that works out really well. And uh, Merrick really brings that out in his conducting. And uh, the playful nature of this piece is uh, a nice, enjoyable start to the recording. Yeah, incidentally, I have this um this CD on order and it hasn't arrived yet, so I had to listen to it on Deezer, so I didn't didn't get to read any notes about this. Uh, this is an overture to to what though? Is it an opera or yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, one of yeah, one of his operas, the Shriner. Yeah. It means the carpenter. The carpenter. Apparently. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I said this sounds a lot more confident than in volume one. It's, there's a lot more kind mm -hmm. of energy and uh, drive to it. And uh, that got me into it right away. I was like, oh, and I <laughs> I would like to think. That after talking to us, <laughs> they they kind of improved their approach to the music, but that's again no, no, as no. last it was well last week not the case because this was recorded long before we even started doing a podcast. So there you go. It definitely no does. Um, <laughs> this recording to me, as we, I think maybe Daniel was uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons he contacted us. We were sort of maybe off the cuff with uh, our review. Well, it's not really, we don't review well, things, I, we just discuss I had them. said that- uh, It was yeah, a matter-of-fact performance, yeah. No, I didn't, did I say that? Yeah, I think you did. Ah, oh, that was mean. What, what I well, said was, uh, I felt like a lot more could have been made of the, um, some of the, like, um, like th there was more drama in the works that was, than was coming across. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think I had mentioned that that was, you know, that would require different performances to bring all of those out, you know, with different right. approaches. And uh, I think he, he didn't take exception to it, but he kind of said that um, he, he sort of said, well, yeah, we, we don't really have a template. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, this is the template. Yeah. Yeah. We are recording yeah. these things that, you know, there's nothing to compare them to. Uh, yeah. But I, I definitely feel that the, the level of energy is up on uh, this second recording. Yeah. And, uh, well, I thought they might hold this one to the end, but it's, uh, you know, the featured work here, and that's the uh, Symphony in D minor, the yeah. La Tempesta. And uh, this one is really a lot of fun. And what's really cool, and thanks to Daniel, you you can go to the uh, Renitsky Project homepage and uh, download the score. And while I listened to this, I looked, I was following the orchestral score, uh, which is a a bit tricky doing it on a, a PDF because you've you know you've got all of the parts uh, that don't fit on one page, so you're constantly scrolling uh, to see all of them. But I was following along, and that was kind of entertaining. He also has all of this in uh, I don't know, uh, it's a you know musical format. When 
I'm not sure what it's supposed to be played on, but when I downloaded it and double clicked on the Mac, it came up in my uh, GarageBand uh, fully implemented <laughs> through MIDI. And so I was able wow. to listen to all of the parts uh, with pitches, uh, you know, in uh, GarageBand uh, oh, separated by parts. It was really yeah, interesting. I didn't do that. Yeah, no. I didn't get too involved in that because I would have not <laughs> got through the recording. So I went back to look at the score and then started to listen to this. And uh, this work is uh, really a lot of fun. And yeah, this I'm is the highlight, I think, of yeah, this, this disc. I think Symphony in D minor, La Tempesta. Yeah, so the first movement, mm. uh, Allegro Molto, um, it starts out in kind of a worrisome minor key mood that's uh, showing you uh, the storm is to come. Uh, I like the dynamic contrasts, the parts uh, with the uh, reed instruments to punctuate sort of the what's happening in the strings. Uh, then the the winds come in, uh, and then uh, you feel like the skies have cleared with this kind of uh, upbeat major section. And the sort of pattern of the work is in the first movement is the minor and major sections are alternated uh, through the movement. And there's interesting transitions. And then each time you get a little bit more development of the theme. Uh, yeah. I noticed that in Ranitsky's compositions, I think so when things are repeated, they're embellished and, you know, developed a little bit more each time. And if you're listening carefully, you'll notice that. And uh, especially like the string, uh, the triplet figures in the strings here. And uh, then it ends finally going back to the minor section. This is a really long movement yeah. <laughs> for a symphony. You, you uh, also so get the impression that Beethoven was very aware of him because this sort of, I, I heard a lot of similar um, mm -hmm sort of ideas, you know, if not, if, if right. they weren't like executed or used the same way, but I, I noticed that this, this, there's yeah. some Beethovenian elements to this work. Yes. And uh, then the second movement, the uh, Adagio. And uh, so it's a nice kind of six, eight ma major melody that's played softly in the strings. This recording is really nice too. The strings sound really warm and rich. Uh, here. Uh, yeah. And it builds more. And there's some really nice uh, wind parts in the flute, oboe and bassoon. The horn is really nice too. And there's a contrasting minor section that's uh, very nice. The whole key here is balance. And uh, I think Merrick's conducting keeps that, that everything is balanced really well. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can hear all the parts. And I think Merrick talked to us about that in the interview. Uh, with uh, Ranitsky's uh, part writing. And that, that showed through to me on all of this recording, the counter melodies and the harmonies, uh, everything fits really nicely. And mm -hmm. you want to be able to hear everything because there's he doesn't write sort of filler parts. Uh, you can tell that everything is, you know, leading somewhere and you can listen to the in individual lines in all of the different sections. And mm -hmm. uh, everything yeah, fits very, very nicely and uh the way this recording shows the clarity and uh conducting brings that out and so uh, this one just the second movement here just lovely in the balancing of it yeah very pretty yeah it's very a pretty. nice uh, elegant very elegant i thought the melody yeah elegant but it's all leading yeah. up to uh yeah. you know this is the want, storm i think we want the, the storm movement. in the finale yeah. the allegro con fuoco and yeah. uh, then things really get going here uh there's these 16th note uh, violin figures and uh, these kind of syncopated horn uh, lines that 
kind of signal or oh, something's really coming here. And then you've got these sweeping upward string figures. R- reminded me of uh, the Bernard Herman score for Psycho when the uh, the murders <laughs> happen. You know, right? they, they had yeah, this, the, kind of, this you know. yeah, coming up things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then the trumpets come in too. And we have a huge timpani thunder in this movement, uh, which right. is really cool too. Um, but there's also nice contrasting quiet sections and those help to build the tension, you know, uh, the storm's coming. It's not quite here. Um, and there's also some interesting pauses in here, right about two and a half minutes. There's some big timpani thunder. There's a huge pause there and you think, okay, now, you know, the lightning's going to strike, but it doesn't, uh, it gets a bit peaceful and, uh, comes in, but there's sort of, uh, interesting uh, bassoon notes that come in they're not quite peaceful you know the the uh pitch that he's picked uh there to come in and they remind you oh there might still be some uh danger coming along but uh, things get huge and swelling again uh a little bit before there's a nice uh flute and oboe and bassoon interlude uh then the skies clear up towards the end and the flute brings in the sunshine and uh then uh, things change again, and then it sort of charges ahead to a big happy major ending. And uh, yeah, it really takes you on, uh, you know, a tempest storm uh, journey. I'm sure that this work would be a real hit in live performance. Uh, audiences would love this. Yeah. Um, I also wrote that this uh, this particular movement it was it was bold for this era. Oh sure, um, yeah. An, um, yeah, I think this is pre Beethoven. Um, although Beethoven. Knew if, maybe it was you know I don't I'm not, I forgot his years, but I also wrote that there there are these thunderous rolling bass drums that boom out of the texture. Now this isn't the score. This is actually the mic placement and the performance here. And I thought it was a very cool sound that they got. Oh, it's um, huge on that yeah. part. It was really nice. It kind of really rumbled in the headphones. I was you know I really enjoyed that. Yeah, this is okay. a this is a really great piece. Um, yeah. Played with a lot of uh, confidence, just like the the mm-hmm. Shriner. Okay, so we're. Um, yeah. the, I, I think that I think that now that the project has moved along a bit, um, the conductor and the um, the orchestra are like really starting to get like the feel of this yeah. music at this point. It sounds really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um, okay, and it's compact, just three movements here. Uh, yeah, and so. Uh, well, yeah. they're 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 pretty long movements. Yeah, the, the first <laughs> for, movement is for really the really year. Special, it's not like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Then we've got uh, next is uh, the symphony in A major. This is uh, opus 16, uh, number two. It starts out with uh, Allegro Molto. This movement is uh, elegant and stately at the same time. It's got a lot of nice contrasting sections again. I I think that uh, one of the features I'm noticing in Renitzi's composition are these uh, well-balanced contrasts between the sections of the strings uh, and then wind instruments. So we've got lilting strings here and slight pauses before the winds and brass join in on the more sort of stately sections. And uh, there's some interesting string notes with pauses uh, before the ending of this one. And what I notice is, you know, as Renitzki develops his themes, and uh, comes back to earlier sections that repeat, he always introduces something new and interesting so that you don't get too comfortable. Uh, You know, you can get lulled into 
sort of patterns in any style of music, classical music too. But I found that he always introduces some new element when he comes back to another theme that if you're paying attention, you say, oh, that's a little bit uh, different there. And uh, I, I noticed that in this movement. And so I appreciated, you know, those sort of subtleties in the compositions. All right. Yeah, I thought the, this work was uh, more straightforward than uh, well, the, and the next one too. They're, they're yeah. in four movements, and they're pretty, right. um, pretty much what you'd expect. The third movement is um, what do you call it? A menuet and, yeah. and trio. You have the slow second yeah. movement. The second movement, a little yeah, shorter. The, the yeah. adagio. It's a peaceful theme. Uh, it has this one has some really nice uh, orchestration, horn, right? The wind, the winds are really kind of cool. They're interjected really in there. In that's this. really nice. There's also a nice flute yeah. line, and then. I also notice, again, as I mentioned before, Raninsky writes really good counter melodies and the parts, they work really well together without obstructing, you know, sort of, uh, they don't just become sort of a wash of harmonies. The parts are very distinct and those individual voices, you can hear them really clearly here. I mean, of course, that's in the writing, uh, also in the recording, but I think Merrick brings them out in the conducting too, because everything's balanced uh, really well. And you enjoy those sort of layers of sound that are distinct uh, in here. And that leads into the uh, third movement, the Menuetto, uh, it's a Allegro Trio. It's a very happy waltzing theme. The string mm -hmm. parts are elegant. Uh, the main section is played very, very softly. And it's got a lot of subtle uh, embellishments uh, on a lot of the parts as they come through again. And they're just, they're treated just right, never too much uh, with just the right spice there. And the finale here is the Allegro Molto. Uh, the string intro starts a really nice sense of motion because there's some rests on the fourth beat. And so that keeps you moving on to the next measure and you know, propelled forward. Uh, when the winds come in, the intensity picks up. And then there's another soft section that comes after that soon. And then uh, when you're coming through and getting ready, you know, to uh, come to the sort of the climax, he introduces this uh, triplet figure in the low strings. And the, to me, that was a signal like, okay, things are going to build up to a clim climax here. However, the uh, ending of this piece is really rather tidy and, uh, you know, sort of restrained uh, to this one. So this, uh, this, um, Symphony in A major. It's it's a bit more standard, but very well constructed and balanced. And well orchestrated. Too. The orchestration yeah. is pretty interesting, and that's really what grabbed my ear. And I think uh, uh, the conductor Stilitz, Marek Stilitz, um, wants you to hear all of the lines. He he seems to really go for that sort of thing more yeah. than um, like I've said before, more than um, you know trying to kind of you know highlight certain lines to uh, you know create a certain image of the piece so i think he, he wants to you know he wants you to hear everything that's nice here because it's a it's a beautifully orchestrated um uh work especially the second movement i really enjoyed that a yeah lot. I, that's what i'm feeling and get trying to get a feel you know for uh Brunitsky's sort of signature and personality it it's sort of a extreme talent for you know melody and voicings i'm feeling he's, you know, he's pretty unique and this is why i think this music yeah. should be heard more i'm pretty uh, surprised by all of this it's um i'm finding very much of its era but it's it's different too you know it's not like you know even in the, the accompanying parts you know something that's uh you know supporting the melody is extremely melodic in itself the voice leading and patterns are not just filling in the chords but they're actually, you know, playing 
counter melodies, you know, in the second and other voices uh, below that. And even in sort of the rhythmic accompaniments, they're really interesting uh, what's going on uh, in the lower voices and things too. So it's really important that you get to hear all of the voices clearly, and you can do that really well in this recording. Uh, so it's very pleasing and a fun listening experience with this one. And then the final piece is the symphony in F major. This is opus 33, number three. This one uh, starts with uh, a first movement. It's contrasting. It's uh, Andante, Allegro Vivace. And so hmm. the beginning is very different from the end. It starts. It kind of starts like yeah, with a French uh, overture, you know, the yeah, dong, really slowly, dong, you know, this sort but, of. Um, but with the that, full ensemble. So it's really full, but slow. And then yeah. the sort of lilting oboe melody comes in and has a contrasting thing with the flute that goes on. And then after a brief pause, the strings start the new fast theme and then it builds yeah. through the sections. And, it, and again, Mozart used to do this sort of thing a lot. And it yeah, this me is of sort of Mozartian in this style. Yeah. Um, but you'll notice the exquisite part writing and melodic development as this thing uh, gets going in this movement. Then the brass and timpani accents uh, give a very stately air to this one. Uh, and then about five and a half minutes in, there's a new theme that comes in and there's some interesting twists and minor chords that come in through here too. So I like that. You know, sort of changing the mood again. There's some really nice horn figures and woodwind lines. And when you're coming to the uh, end, uh, there's some unexpected chord changes too that kind of increase the tension before the final section. So I felt like you know, I, I don't, you know, this is only our second recording of Ranitsky. Uh, he's very much in, you know, sort of the uh, classical era parameters, but he does have some unique surprises sometimes and he likes to sort of uh when, when you may be expecting you know something standard to come he will pull something out and i thought uh right at the ending here that uh, he created a little bit of extra tension with the harmony that was nice uh to me um and then uh we've got the next movement is the allegretto and uh, mm -hmm. this one is a nice kind of uh, dancing triplet start uh, also including some nice light trumpet fanfares um about just before two minutes in, a minute and 50 seconds or so, there's a quick change to a minor section and that sort of alternates with the major. And then there's a great tease of a pause before they do this the second time. It's a very subtle thing, but I really noticed it because I feel like uh, Ranitsky could sense the listener like maybe lulled into, you know, okay, here's this format of A, B, A, B or something. And just when you think you know what's coming next, you just throw a little uh, slight hesitation or something in there. Uh, and I, I like the uh, flute and trumpet sections here. Uh, but then a little bit after four, four minutes, 15 seconds or so, things slow down and seem to be moving for a more dramatic ending. But then it rather <laughs> calms down and ends very subtly uh, against maybe uh, at my expectations, at least. Uh, third movement, the uh, menuetto. So... Uh, Allegretto Trio. There's a quick waltzing theme here, but the contrasting uh, melodic sections are nice. And here, hmm. here, you're going to get Go ahead. one of the uh, you know, things uh, that you should notice <laughs> here if you're not sleeping. Uh, you're going to hear Odu Lieber Augustin, or for you Americans, did you ever see a lassie? Oh. Uh, so that, that um, 
melody uh, is uh, coming into here. And what what language is that original title? Uh, is? Austrian or German oh, is it Australian or something. Yeah, I think Austrian. I think, you know, it became Austrian. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think, well, if you ever see a lassie is, I think it became like a Scottish uh, tune or something okay. like that. But uh, yeah, this was a, kind of a pop melody of the day, I think in the, uh, a 17th century or something. Uh, but then Ranitsky was one of the composers who had used it in his works. And so it's very outstanding. <laughs> it's really well developed here. So uh, yeah, that, that's not done as often that. as you would think back in those times. Uh, no, no. So it's, yeah, it's yeah it really, yeah. it'll really hit you here unless you're sort of lulled uh, away. But uh, yeah, it's noted. If you look, if you look up a reference of the history of that theme, as I did, uh, you'll see that Ranitsky is credited uh, with using it uh, in his composition. And uh, this one has uh, four movements. So the final is the uh, Allegro Sai. And this uh, one has uh, some exciting brisk string themes uh, that get joined by the winds and become more developed. And uh, some interesting little parts and lines, including this kind of cool little uh, bridge phrase of uh, woodwind intervals that only happens once here. Uh, and there's some interesting contrasting minor sections uh, through here. And then around around three minutes in, there's a pause. And then the woodwinds start again with the theme. Uh, and again, I noticed that as he comes through repeating the sections, there's always creative variations in Ranitsky. So the small subtleties of the parts uh, are, are really charming in his music. Uh, and then also, as this comes to the climax, when it gets to the close, there's, you know, the sort of alternating chords, you know, it's a fourth boom, 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 kind of, you know, creating a, this expectation in uh, the classical period, you know, that you're used to hearing, thinking, okay, I know how this is going to go. But he adds a, a little harmonic surprise uh, to mix it up in the progression uh, before it comes right to the end. And so I, I get, you know, as we've talked about, like, um, in, um, you know, uh, CPE Bach and uh, other, you know, composers that had some humor, I don't, I don't see so much uh, sort of outright jokingness in Ranitsky, but I feel like he has a sense like of where the audience attention span is. And yeah. then he knows like you may be at a point where you're expecting something, even, you know, it's interesting because we're looking back in hindsight on, you know, this era, uh, looking at all yeah. the conventions from what was developed right. from that. But even at the time, he could tell what his audience would be expecting. And he just yeah. throws a little bit of a detour in yeah. at certain so, spots to take you, uh, you know, on a little bit different journey. And I like that about it. So I used to do sort of things like that, too. He put these little right. jokes in the middle to, uh, to startle yeah. the audience or whatever. All right. Um, I thought I, I had mentioned that. Um, um, you, you certain um things. You know, how am I going to say this? I actually said it at the beginning. I can't remember, but certain um, you know, like there are elements of the score where you'd want to hear more recordings of it so that you can kind of hear the drama. Like right. I feel like these last two works again, where they're they're being conducted so that you can hear the whole score and everything. Yes. Um, I f I didn't get that as much. I felt like the uh, the Tempesta, that that symphony, and the De Schreiner Overture were more realized, and it makes me wonder. I suspect that this recording 
was made in the reverse order that it's been released. Like I think the last symphony on the on the uh, album was recorded first, and then huh. the third third one was recorded second. Just because I feel like the confidence level of the first two works is higher than mm-hmm. the last two. So I'm just kind of curious about that. Maybe Daniel could let us know. Could be. <laughs> but let us know. Daniel, that's what I think. Anyway, no, it's a, to listen to us uh, talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a, this is like a, yeah, a much better um, release than the first one. The first one was good. I didn't really, you know, I just, they were just, I just felt that there were certain things about it that I could, that could have, uh, that I would have liked to have heard more. But this one was a lot more fully realized. I liked it a lot, especially the first two works. Yeah. And I really, I think from here on end, this is going to be a really interesting uh, series because I think the uh, performances are only going to get better and better as the orchestra really gets this, um, these scores under their fingers and the whole style, you know, in, in their heads. Yeah, I really enjoyed I, I, this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the performances are really good. They're, they seem to be more, um, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, they're more confident. And, um, yeah, especially the first two, I think. The first two. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like uh, the recording is, is excellent because it brings yeah. out all the different um, part writing. You can hear everything very clearly, uh, but the balance is also excellent. And I yeah. feel that, um, uh, you know, that's due to not only recording, but also the conducting, um, you know, managing the balancing of the sections. The tempos seem all exactly right where they should be. Um, everything seems uh, relaxed when it should be and then intense, uh, you know, when it should be. And uh, bringing out in the best things in the Runacy compositions and the climaxes are really good and satisfying. Um, yeah, and uh-huh. I'm getting more intrigued to find yeah, me too. The, the sort of style of his compositions. Uh, and there is some uniqueness. Like I say, it is classical music. It is in you know, the realm of Mozart and Haydn, but it's not that. It's something uh, different on its own. And I'm getting a sense. I'll have to listen to more and even this one more times, but I'm getting a sense of Brunitsky's personality uh, yeah. coming through this. And I like it a lot. And um, yeah, I want to hear more. I'm going to say to listeners, um, if you want to, if you're just going to sample this, if you're curious and you don't have much time, just uh, go for it. Go for Symphony in D minor, La Tempesta. I think that's the highlight. Yeah, I think that'll turn you on to this. Yeah, and I think listen. Anyone who's putting together a program and wants something different with the classical piece, put this on your live program. Uh, the audience yeah. is going to have a blast at the end of this one for sure. Yeah, and I want to say to Naxos Records, this this series is just getting good now. Come on, put out some more. Yeah. All right, we're ready. We're ready for more Throw of this. Throw the budget this, uh, at it. That's right. Yeah. Guess let's have some budget. Yeah. Okay. And there we go. Ranitsky Volume 2. He, he's kind of becoming like a a thing on this podcast. I'm kind yeah. of... Yeah. He's kind of... He, we're going to be associated with him, I guess. I'm looking forward to Volume 3. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to Volume 3, too. Maybe we'll have it for Christmas. That'd be nice. Naxos, you going to do that for us? Come on. <laughs> I know that, I know that uh, Daniel and uh, Merrick are ready for it, but... We have yeah, to get so, them yeah. to release it. All right. Anyway, some budget there, please. Um, anyone wants to fund that per, that too, please do that. <laughs> okay. If anybody out there has uh, wants to help out. Okay. So we're actually pretty heavy on the classical music side this week because I've got three more classical recordings. We've got two jazz this week, right? That's right. Because we just did the Ranitsky. We, we, we were thinking about whether we were going to just do seven recordings, but uh, we wanted this to start with vent a little bit. There's a troubling trend that I've noticed um, as I search for new releases uh, there's this disturbing trend of only releasing one teaser track on streaming 
for a long time, like up to a month, there's one track available and you still can't listen to the whole album. I have at least half a dozen recordings like that. And there's also no date listed uh, when you'll be able to listen to it. And no, of course, if I, these were, you know, artists that uh, if it was, I was pop really music, familiar with. Well, pop too, music, you know? but if it was because it's a song, they want you to hear the song. Yeah. But if you listen to jazz, it's a different thing. You want to hear it's a different like, kind of thing. Know. I'll be yeah. more likely to buy it if I can hear the whole thing and like it, and then I would buy yeah. it rather than if I can only hear one track, especially of an artist that I'm not completely familiar with. Uh, I hope this isn't a new trend, um, but there's a lot of things like that that I've been waiting on for more than a month, and uh, I still can't listen to the whole thing. So we can't talk about it yet so yeah yeah come on jazz labels that's what (laughs) i'm talking uh, about step up get get that music out there there, yeah and we'll be happy to talk about it and just send us a check we gotta hear it first uh, yeah we gotta hear it first (laughs) yeah speaking of hearing it first um we've got uh going back to the uh baroque uh era next we're going a little backwards in time and this is an album by uh nicola benedetti um simply called Baroque, all right? Now, she's kind of... Benedetta, she's got an Italian name, but she's actually British. Um, she's, oh, she I'm disappointed. Sorry well, she's that. got Italian roots, though. And uh, this album is called Baroque. It, it really should just be called Vivaldi, though, because that's basically it's what it is. mostly what it is, yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, three Vivaldi um, um, concertos for violin. There's one Vivaldi movement from a violin concerto. And then there's just one extra track, uh, Francesco G- Gimignani. Francesco Gimignani's... Uh, Concerto Grosso on uh, La Folia, which he kind of, he lifted the entire violin line. He didn't just kind of write it after Corelli's Violin Sonata, Opus 5, number 12. He actually lifted the violin line from that. It's the same, but he orchestrated it differently. Um, La Folia is like a a series of, um, it's a series of... um, chords that are improvised over sort of like in jazz, I guess, but um, he's he's sort of reorchestrated it here. Um, This is... um, Benedetti's first recording in um, Baroque music, which is really um, surprising. Mm. She um, usually does. Uh, well, last week, last year, we heard her in an Elgar violin concerto, and uh, she she had been talking to the uh, who, what is uh, Andrea Marcon? He's an Italian director and with of a Venice ensemble. I can't remember the name of the ensemble. I should look it up. But uh, she had been working with him and talking to him, and he. Um, gave her a lot of ideas about Baroque music and she went for it. Now, this particular recording, she, oh, okay, by the way, she's listed here and uh, I'm looking at um, Wikipedia. She's listed as Scottish Italian. <laughs> okay. She was never, born in Scotland though. I so never I knew there was her, such a thing, but why not? I think of her as Scottish, but you know, she's, uh, I guess she has an Italian parent, but she was, you know, she's born in Scotland. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Of course um, she was. So she's going for the, um, <laughs> <laughs> said Sean Connery as James Bond. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Um, so this, um, she's put together, she's not playing with and- Andrea Marcon and his um, ensemble here. She's um, uh, put together her own ensemble of uh, players and they're called the, um, boy, I'm going to open the booklet to see this. It's not on the, uh, not on the cover. She's, she, she's the only one with the billing here. Okay. With the uh, Benedetti Baroque, Baroque Orchestra. Okay. All right. So um, I looked, I had to do a little research into this because when I heard this recording, okay, the, there, it's, uh, it's a lot of Vivaldi, um, not such familiar concertos, but the sound 
profile of these is familiar. They're fairly aggressively played and beautifully um, blended. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of butteriness to the whole kind of way the entire ensemble like melts together. And it made me think, oh, they're playing on steel strings, modern instruments, but that's not the case. She's actually using... Hmm? Yeah, it's not. not. She's yeah. she's playing on uh, gut strings here. I had to look this up, and I was kind of surprised to hear it because you're not hearing the separation mm-hmm. between the instruments that you normally hear with a baroque orchestra. Um, by the way, did you get the um, the uh, the frequency? A is because um, this sounds bright to me, and I'm guessing it's not one of the lower pitches for A. I bet they're using something a little higher, uh, like around four forty hertz. Yeah. I cu- I couldn't find I couldn't find any information Could be on a it. Bit- a bit higher, yeah. Yeah, because it's very bright sounding. Mm-hmm. This it doesn't sound like um it sounds like a broke ensemble. There's a harpsichord and there are strings, right? right? So it sounds like a, a Vivaldi, you know, recording, but there's something a little smoother or slicker about it than what we usually hear. And I'm kind of wondering what's causing that. Well, first of all, one of the things that's causing it is the um the ability of the uh performers. I mean, she plays these um these the solos beautifully um, at, at very high speeds, which also made me surprised to learn that these They're were very spirited, strings. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the um, ensemble is really thick sounding. It looks like there are nine string instruments. There's a lute and there's a harpsichord, um, but it sounds like a, a. It sounds like it takes up all the space. The um, mm-hmm. the uh, the ensemble again, something that I'm not really used to hearing in a baroque. Uh, um, recording and um, the harpsichord and the lute kind of sound buried underneath all that like the harpsichord is kind of like outlining its um sort of uh, the harmony but uh, you got you to really listen through to hear it it's not like kind of out there in the open um, so it's it's got a very specific um, sound quality to it um, it's a little different than what we hear we normally hear with um period instrument performances. I don't think she's using either like, she must be to an extent though, a period instrument like a playing style so much. There's no vibrato, but it's very smooth kind yeah, of, you know, and uh, it's a vid- uh, she, she has virtuosic no, bowing. Yeah. She doesn't use any vibrato uh, yeah. to speak of. And at, at my first impression was the, the gut string sound is rather dry. Yeah. Like, when I just heard like a few isolated tones, I thought this it's a bit, you know, like dry. But mm. once and as the recording goes on, I felt like it works and I got used to yeah. it and I liked it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I had to make an adjustment, yeah. but I did like this. It's yeah, very, like it. it's fairly aggressive. It's not very yeah. aggressive, like, uh, you know, in uh, an off-putting way or anything like that. Ultimately, the overall balance of the sort of string timbre and then the spirited nature of the performances all sort of gelled to me once I, you know, got into it and heard all the balance of all the parts. So right. uh, I thought that worked really well. Yeah. Um, I think the highlight on this was the uh, Gimignani piece, uh, Concerto Grosso in D minor, La Folia, because it's got a lot more space in it. You get to hear uh, mm-hmm. the inventiveness of the um, the writing, the, um, uh, you know, the variations and it's it's a familiar melody, so it's it's a familiar um, 
chord progression, let's say, right. you know, from this era. So um, it's 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 it just feels good. The the Vivaldi pieces all in three movements. I mean, you can pretty much guess more or less yeah. what they're like. I can't really like isolate them and say say what's different, but they're 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 all different, obviously, with melodies and things like that. But um, Vivaldi had set the template for the concerto with these sorts of works. And then there's a very pretty um, movement from um, the B flat major violin concerto at the end. So. I thought if you're used to playing, listening to Baroque music as I am, I listen to it like every morning. This is a bit, uh, this this has got a bit more caffeine in it than Baroque. And Baroque Baroque uh, recordings generally have a bit of caffeine in them. They right. they they tend to be very lively and upbeat. But this sounds like there's a bit of aggressive in it. There's really beautiful string sound all the way down, and especially from uh, Benedetti. Um, and I think this is a really successful um, Baroque recording. Um, I'm I'm going to listen to this, I think, but I don't think it's going to be one of my favorite Baroque recordings of the year. Um, I did enjoy it, though. So that, I don't really have much more to say about it, It's <laughs> except that give it a listen if you like Baroque music. It's good, but it's a little, uh, a little different than what you'd normally expect from a Baroque recording. It's a little bit outside. I think I read that it was her first time to use yeah. these kind of gut strings, so... Right, that said, it's, it's the first time in- to record, make a Baroque recording yeah, as well. that's pretty impressive. So yeah. uh, maybe it's a bit outside of the box with that. But I, I liked it. And uh, overall, the performance is pleasing and the balance is good. So, yeah, yeah, maybe if she goes in this direction more, then, you know, maybe it'll become something even bigger. But certainly there's no letdown here. Everything's really enjoyable. So, yeah. It's just more Vivaldi, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I guess it's not. You can't ever have too much Vivaldi, but no, nah, I don't know. Maybe you can. Well, I don't know. yeah, one one <laughs> recording at a time is usually enough. But yeah, um, they're um, Vivaldi. By the way, if you if you kind of Vivaldi's, he's a really easy listen. And I one one thing I get from people um, is that they they kind of apologize to me for liking Vivaldi because I think it's like too simple. Uh, which I think is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> He's a great composer. He has oh, great yeah. melodies. Um, the Four Seasons is is really inventive. I mean, they're they're just it's a fantastic work. But the thing is, if you're just getting into Baroque music, this is a great place to start because they're kind of like um, pop song length uh, movements. They're all like right. four minutes, three minutes, and they're over you know before you know it. And you're just getting into them, you know. Right. But uh, that's that's how he wrote and um, very enjoyable. And that's not all. That's not all he did. We also found out that he wrote a lot of really interesting operas as well in the Mm -hmm. 90s they started discovering them and recording them so there's more to Vivaldi than his violin concerti so anyway an enjoyable record Um, I think it should be labeled a Vivaldi recording but it's simply called Baroque good work Nicola Benedetti I really uh, I really liked this get those good strings on there and play some more we want to hear it a lot of strings yeah I had to to really listen for the lute there's a lute player on this um, recording they're kind of that that string texture was kind of heavy somehow. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So I'm kind of cool. curious about that. Nine players, nine, yeah, so right. nine string players uh, plus her, so it's ten. Mm. So two per voice, and then there's like a double bass, and there's her, and there's a lute and harpsichord underneath that. I'll have to do some research into that and see. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> <laughs> we have. Um, oh, by the way, I should mention. Um, the Nicola Benedict. I got to start mentioning the labels. Um, that's recorded on Decca Records, and Deca, it just came Deca. out just last week. Yeah. Okay. The next one is a recording um, for trumpet and organ by Tina Ting Helseth and uh, Cora Nordstoga. 
I think is I actually wrote down how to say this name. Cora? Oh, is that how you say Cora? I don't know. It's got a little thing over the Cora. A. There. Yeah, it's got the A with the Cora. circle over it. And I get this. Hmm. Oh wait, where did I where did I put this? Oh, here it is. Uh yeah, Cura. Nordstoga. Okay, as the uh, organist. All right, magical memories for trumpet and organ. Now, uh, this attracted me right away because I love the organ and uh, I like the trumpet. And we have uh, Russ here who is a an actual trumpet player. And uh, I kind of, um, we, I'm always intrigued by this combination of instruments, which is actually more common than I thought it was. The trumpet mm. gets paired with the organ quite often. I had no mm. idea about this. Not in this and, way, though. Not in this way, but it often happens in church, apparently, because, you know, people yes. play the trumpet in church, and naturally there's an organ there, and the trumpet winds up playing with the organ. Now, this winds up being really interesting because both have, a, when they're played this way, especially, the, the tr classical trumpet has kind of this sort of like spiritual um, kind of connotation to it somehow. It's bright. It's kind of like a herald, you know, sort oh, of. Um, it shall sound. Yeah, it shall sound, you know, the... Um, especially in Baroque era music, yes. which is mostly what you hear it in. Um, this type of playing with these long, drawn-out notes and a beautiful ringing tone uh, kind of reminds me of Christmas, really. And mm -hmm. uh, this record did, too. Um, this is on the Lao Classics label, and uh, the cover photo is a photo of uh, Tina Ting Helseth with her trumpet getting ready to play against a hot pink background. kind of wondering about that. It does stand out. This, this cover. And it's a collection of works for trumpet and organ that are either Baroque, there are one or two Baroque suites on this, or they're Scandinavian works, really from all over Scandinavia. We have Greek, Norwegian music, I think there are a few Danish composers on here, and one or two contemporary ones as well. Swedish all of these term, works, yeah. yeah, all of these works fall really um, nicely on the ear. Um, it's... Um, the trumpet's recorded exceptionally well. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, brass instruments can really blare, and this doesn't at all. It's really beautifully played. Uh, she, the way she kind of forms her melodies and just tapers off at the, um, the sound at the um, cadences is just really beautiful. Uh, she has a really good sense of the melody, and that's um, important here because a lot of these works are taken from um, Scandinavian folk songs. You get that kind of folk quality from them. Um, sh should I even, this is, it's a, this is a long program. It's a program of 25 tracks, uh, most of which are around three or four minutes long. It's kind of hard to, um, kind of keep track of what they are really. If you're just listening from far away, there are a few pretty popular ones. Uh, the opening prelude from the Te Deum by Marc Antoine Charpentier is pretty, uh, well known. We get a few bridal marches, um, that are anonymous, uh, arranged by, uh, Teen, Tina Ting Helseth. Can you get an anonymous bride with those? Or? I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's a mail-order one. Ooh, mail order, yeah. Oh, Ooh. boy. Okay. So, um, there are one or two. And we get um, some Telemann. We get a, a suite by uh, Jeremiah Clark. A lot of Grieg. Grieg. She seems to end sections with a Grieg, a work by Grieg. Um, and then there was um, the thing that stood out for me was, I didn't even know what this was. Um uh, Jean-Joseph Moret, uh, the rondeau from Fanfares et, and Symphonies. This is, yeah, this um, one is, is a Trump, popular trumpet one, yeah. 
It was used in uh, Masterpiece Theater on PBS. Yes, yeah. that's right. I remember so that Canadian when I was Brass a kid. and other. Yeah, you know, so this is a familiar a melody. One, yeah, uh, but most of these melodies aren't familiar. Um, the other thing that stands out too, well, there are only two things that could possibly stand out, and they both do: the organ playing. Uh, mm. The organ playing here by uh, Nordstuga, Kora Nordstuga, is really um, it, it's it's sensitive. It never kind of kind of interferes with the trumpet. The trumpet sounds out, you know very clearly above it and the organist has a lot of different um sounds at his or her i don't know who this there's no picture of this person in the book so i don't know who it is it has a lot of um sounds at (laughs) that 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 can be used oh here it is it's a guy okay uh at his disposal i didn't know this name okay forgive me um and uh, he and uses a lot of the color. The organ will often the color of the organ uh, timbre will often change under the uh, trumpet playing. And it's very subtle, but it, it pulled my ear in and um, just had I, this was an easy listen, despite it being so many different pieces. Um, you know, for a fairly long program, um, I got through it without a problem, without any ear fatigue at all. This is you know, this is just really fantastic. I thought I I, I like the playing. I like the uh, the approach, and I like the program. Um, usually, you'll hear um, you know trumpets will, will have like old Baroque programs and things like that. But they've um, this duo has um, put some Baroque works in with um, modern Scandinavian works, as I said, and a few um, contemporary works to make a really intriguing program. I just enjoyed this all the way through. And that's what I have for that. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, trumpet and organ works, a lot of them uh, from Germany, uh, well-known and lesser-known ensembles, and they almost exclusively focus on the Baroque element, so you know what you're going to get. So I think the strength here in this recording is the variety of the programming. Uh, I like Helseth's trumpet playing. It's uh, very pretty. Uh, and compact. Yeah. She doesn't have the great impact. It's, it's fairly low key, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of. She doesn't yeah. have the the great, uh, you know, sort of dynamic sound that um, a lot of uh, other recordings of the Baroque pieces have. But that doesn't matter here because I've heard these recordings of these pieces so many times. Uh, you know, I'm not really expecting to hear something great and new. With them, I think the strength that she has here is incorporating these uh, Scandinavian pieces in here. And that's what made the reporting uh, interesting for me, uh, because she can uh, show that uh, more lyrical style and also variation of tone. Uh, If she were only playing the Baroque pieces, I would say this is just another recording of these same pieces that I could put on the shelf uh, Hmm. with those other ones. But... I think her strength is in the lyrical nature and the sweetness of her tone, uh, which is very nice. And then the Greek pieces, the uh, Shenandoah also. Oh, that's uh, right. I forgot to mention yeah, that. Shenandoah is on here very, too. It's yeah. very uh, lyrically played. And yeah. I'm not sure how this is pronounced, but the uh, Swedish love song. Is it uh, Stolberg? I didn't, I didn't want to go through the titles because I wasn't uh, going to be able to yeah. pronounce them. Den Forstagang yeah. Jag Sagdig or something like that, which translates yeah. as the first time I saw you or something. Um, but this is really nice. And what's really interesting, you, you might encounter these 
pieces on another trumpet recording. And I have, you know, more lyrical recordings, but these are played with organ, hmm. which, you know, usually it's going to be with piano or something else, but or this some sticks, Baroque orchestra or something. Yeah, yeah. This sticks, you know, with that same instrumentation. So the, the organ is really flexible in tone. And then it brings out uh, her lyrical uh, trumpet nature and it bring, makes it more personal because uh, if you read the, the notes of the recording, apparently her mother was an organist and these were pieces she heard uh, and songs uh, in her youth when she was listening to her mother play and things she remembered. Uh, so I think the strength of this recording is the program, uh, you know, the variety the, of that, and then that it allows her to show her strengths, which to me, her strength as a trumpet player is her more lyrical nature and a phrasing, uh, which wouldn't be necessarily highlighted on an exclusively Baroque program. She has great chops and things, but in comparison with these rec these works that have been recorded a lot of times, I find that the, the Scandinavian pieces uh, and the more lyrical ones uh, really show, uh, you know, her personality. And then the selection of the pieces also show, you know, a unique programming thing. And that's what made it nice for me. So, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, that in yeah. in terms of the content of the program. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the album is called Magical Memories for Trumpet and Organ. The yeah. Magical Memories, of course, are probably of her mother and have learning yeah, these songs. It's her personal memories. When and she that's was what makes younger. it a unique selection of material. Yeah. The thing that I didn't mention this, the th one of the things that makes this so appealing to me was she, her obvious enthusiasm and love for this music. I mean, right. it really comes across as a really warmth um, to it. That's in, that's infectious. I think you can, um, I think anybody could really enjoy this record. I, I liked it a lot. She, she wants to introduce uh, music from her part of the world to the rest of us. And that's what music's all about. And I really enjoyed it. I can say that. Yeah, it's good. Oh. I mean, you know, normally, like when I get in a Baroque mood, I'm in a Baroque mood and I'm going to put yeah. on Baroque and then I'll get tired of it. I, I have a lot of these trumpet and organ recordings and it's like, oh, you know, and then that, that, that's all stately and fine. But he, this is something different here, but keeping the same instrumentation. So it's nice to hear the organ uh, backing something more lyrical and then, you know, to hear the trumpet not as just a fanfare kind of pipe thing that you know it's not at that time you know tr there's one of the things as a trumpet player is uh there's not a great repertoire so there's all these you know sort of transcriptions and things to fill in things then when you get into modern era there's a lot more interesting pieces but nobody knows them because they haven't been played enough and so it takes some creativity uh with adapting other pieces and things uh you know to sort of fill out things and give you some variety in the trumpet repertoire. And this is really nicely done here while being able to keep just this, you know, two instrument sort of thing. And it's done really well. So yeah, if you're a trumpet player uh, or if you like uh, organ, or if you want to go on a little journey and have some uh, Nordic uh, melodies a, in here. If you need some ice nice in your there. summer. Yeah. Check this <laughs> well, out. That's a pretty it's warm good. recording. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Really good uh, selection. Speaking of uh, Nordic, Nordic climbs, uh, we're yes. going on to another Nordic-themed album. This one came out uh, back in March. I've been holding on to this for too long. Nordic Rhapsody on the Beast label by, uh, I wish I'd looked this the pronunciation of this name up, uh, Johan Dalene, Dalene, I guess, on the violin, and Christian Ile Hadland on the piano. Now, Dalene, I hope I'm saying this name right, 
um, yeah, is he's 20 years old or 21 now. I guess he was 20 when this recording was made. And um, he, um, I know of him because he made this great recording of um, both the Tchaikovsky and Barber um, violin sonatas, violin concerto. Sorry, violin concertos last year. I was like, that kind of picked my ears up. And then when I saw this program, I was like, oh, this is pretty um, intriguing. There are all these um, Scandinavian composers on it, and uh, some of them. Familiar to me in ways that, um, you know, well, have to do with my my own youth, which has nothing to do with Scandinavia. But anyway, uh, the, the violinist, uh, Johan <laughs> Dalena, is Swedish, and um, uh, his um, partner here, pianist um, Christian Ite Hadland, is um, Norwegian and around 38 years old. He's old. He's a lot older than Dalena. And the music on this album isn't very well known internationally. Uh, and this is this makes it something I I automatically wanted to hear. I'm always looking to hear some music that I'm not terribly familiar with. Also, if you are fortunate enough, as I am, to own the uh, the Beast CD, it is in fact an SA CD. So you nice. get that great uh, direct stream digital sound, and uh, if you're set up for it, you can have um, super audio CD quality and even multi-channel if you have a uh, surround sound in your a system that'll do that. There's a surround soundtrack on this Thank too. Thank you, I Uncle used, Yeah, I used that. It was kind of cool. Actually, does this, this have a 5.1? It doesn't say. All right, it's probably like in the booklet somewhere. Okay. But uh, I rather enjoyed that. I got to put the uh, the surround speakers on. And uh, it was worth it. In, in that, in that um, context, the uh, violin sounds um, a bit far away from the mics, but it's beautifully balanced with the piano. There's no problem there. The piano sounds kind of full. Mm-hmm. in the recording um now I, I only listen to this and surround in the 5.1 so the back channels are all kind of like an echo but it kind of creates the the illusion of space i probably should have put this in headphones too just to hear what it would sound like in two channels all right anyway yeah details easily heard on this okay now the first piece on this is um by Christian Sinding, he was a Norwegian composer, so I guess this one is, um, you kind of get the the feeling of the uh, pianist and the violinist like trading works from their culture here, because the first one, Sinding, is by um, a Norwegian composer, so the pianist is Norwegian, and then the uh, second work is by um, Wilhelm Stenhammer, who is um, Swedish, and that's the violinist nationality, so they kind of take something from their own countries here. Uh, Sinding is familiar to me because he had a solo piano piece that was really famous called Russell of Spring, which was in my piano bench when I was uh, a kid. I guess um, someone in my family played it. Um, I never heard anyone play it, though. The score was in there. I'm still not really sure how it goes, because I've never heard it on a recording either. I've heard it on a recording a long time ago. I don't really remember it very well. But anyway, here, we're not hearing that, needless to say. We are hearing uh, Sweet Im Altenstil, which I'm guessing is um, high style, Alten, or old style. I don't know. All right. Um, the first movement is uh, kind of a perpetual motion violin line. Um, the second movement has a very pretty melody, and um, Dalena shows off his wonderful legato line that we heard in the concertos last year. He's a, he's a very good violinist, and he's very young, so uh, someone to listen for. He's another one, kind of like... Uh, on the previous recording with uh, Tina Tinghelseth, he shapes his melodies beautifully. 
And that's kind of important in a piece like this that is the world might not be familiar with. Suddenly this work becomes, um, it sticks in the ear. You can remember the melodies very well from this. Sometimes the, the musician can be of uh, great help here. The third movement features some excellent double stopping. So we re we're really hearing his whole... Um, uh, technique in this um, in these three movements. My ear was drawn to um, Hadland's excellent piano playing. By the way, there's um, he's not just an accompanist here. He's really got a part all his own that uh, compels the ear. Um, Dalena, by the way, gets a nice cadenza in this piece, which is unusual for a violin sonata. <laughs> Usually, it's all written out with some impressive double stopping thrown in. And this piece really is kind of a you can kind of say it's almost like he's giving us his calling card here. These are the things I can do, and he does them all well. Beautiful playing. All right, the next piece, the Stenhammer. Two sentimental romances are well-named because they are very sentimental. Uh, Dalena gets in a poignant mood here in the first piece, which is enabled Andantino. Um, I almost didn't notice the relative simplicity of this music because I was so absorbed by his playing. He's, he's got this beautiful, still... Um, line that he plays and uh, with he shapes the ending so that's very intimate it's like a nice leaves you with a nice feeling once it's over the second piece starts forcefully but quickly wanders into a quieter more personal reflectiveness giving the feeling of someone puzzling out an event that's stuck with him or her you know something happened earlier and now you're thinking about it that's kind of the idea I got from hearing the um, violin line um, the violinist gets Dalena gets some opportunities for climactic high notes here and puts them across with full feeling. Next we get three works from Sibelius's six pieces, opus 79, numbers 1, 5, and 6. Uh, number one is called Souvenir. In this case it means uh, memory, like French. Okay, it's a, a memory of something. And the passion or regretful tone sort of indicate the type of memory it is. It's kind of not a, you know, one that's kind of filled with a little bit of remorse, I think. Uh, number five is called uh, Tanz Idil, which is um, uh, it's a, it has a dance-like quality to it. Um, there's kind of a music box sweetness to the quieter sections of the piece, which I, which I really enjoyed. Um, and uh, number six is called uh, Bersuze, which is a lullaby. And it's quiet and light, lovely playing. Next is uh, Carl Nielsen, one of my favorite composers. Um, this is a very brief work, uh, Romance in D Major. Um, it changes between passion and intimacy, loud and quiet. The quieter melody is lovely. Um, again, Dalena's uh, unerring sense of how to shape the melody and uh, pace it, make it register in the memory. Um, again, beautifully executed. Okay, now the next two works, this is pretty interesting for me, uh, are by Eno Yuhani Rautavara, a composer who, he, he died a few years ago. But one of my favorites um, growing, not growing up, but since I started really listening to classical music in my 20s, um, Rautavara started, um, he had a piece called Cantus Arcticus in the 1970s that I only heard around the year, the late 80s. It came out on a Catalyst recording. And it was really beautiful and just uh, riveted me to his music right away. I had to hear more. Then he started composing pieces like the Seventh Symphony, the Angel of Light. He has a series of works that um, have to do with angels. The Angel of Light Symphony from 1994 is well worth hearing. And um, if you've heard it, you'll notice that in this these pieces, Notturno e Danza, which was written in 1993, the Notturno was later used as the theme for the third movement. 
of the Angel of Light Symphony, the Seventh Symphony. It's sort of like the uh, Come Un Sogno movement, like a dream. And it has this dream-like floating quality to it that can put you in the mood of like an angel kind of um, dreaming the world or something like that. Um, but we get to hear it here in its original form, its original idea for violin and piano. And... Um, it's lovely here. It's nice. It's much nicer, I think, in the symphony. But I like the simplicity of this movement here. It's it's got a lot of modal harmony in it too, which also the the, the modal the chords kind of move in a modal sort of um, melodic sort of style. So it has this really floaty quality to it that I enjoyed a lot. Um, okay, so that, um, yeah, it can. This is a piece that can lift a heavy emotional weight off of its listener, both in this form and in the Seventh Symphony. Um, if you haven't heard it, out of our Seventh Symphony, by the way, give it a listen. It's just fantastic. I really love it. Um, it's not. It's not hard on the ear, and it's also uh, got a, some content in it. It's not a lightweight work. It's not a heavy work either. So it's kind of perfect, really. All right, I've heard one more perform. One other performance of this by the. Um, Finnish violinist Pekko Kusisto, and um, I rather liked that one better, I have to say, because they uh, I liked their um, their pacing was a little faster, their tempo was a little faster. Here, um, Dalene and Hadlan take this a little slower than on that recording, and it's good. It's 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 fine like this, but I just like the other one better. All right, and. Um, yeah, the, the the earlier version was less ponderous. This one gets a little ponderous, and I think the, the less weight that's added to this particular movement, the notturno movement, the better. Uh, it's lovely, though. No problem with that. And the less well-known danza movement, the second one, has a glittering piano line that the violin plays its dance melody over. Uh, and this piece uses 11 beats to the bar. It's a little strange. It's hard to count, too. I was kind of trying to, to, to follow it, but um, I guess you'd have to play it to do that. Okay, at the end, we have a big work, Grieg's first violin sonata. This is the um, the only um, multi-movement, well, the, the only big multi-movement work on this um, disc. It's 21 minutes long, so it's double the length of everything else on, on this disc. Um, it's in three movements, and the melodies in this piece all have a traditional Norwegian folk or dance quality to them. So... It, uh, there's something about folk music that really sticks in the ear, so you feel like it's familiar even if you've never heard it before. It starts with a dance-like melody in the Allegro con Brio movement, the first movement. The second, the section oddly ends on a full cadence. This was really strange for me because usually you'll get a cadence at the end of the full section when you've heard both all the themes. But he ends the first melody on a full cadence, and then we're off to the sonata movement's second theme, uh, still cheerful and folky. It doesn't really sound too much like the quality isn't really doesn't contrast very much with the uh, first melody, which is a little unusual, but it's a bit more song-like than the first one. Again, a strong full cadence ends that. In fact, the movement seems to move in sections of song without traditional sonata development. We we seem to kind of get these songs coming one after the other. Um, now, please, I didn't study this score. I know that that's true. So if Grieg uh, scholars out there are going crazy feel free to write to us and explain because <laughs> i would like to know what's going on here um, um the piece is called the sonata but the middle section doesn't really keep switching keys and developing the material rather we get the different sections presented one after the other kind of like a series of panels um he seems to want to present his folk and folk-like material intact 
without like it being kind of broken apart and things like that. That's what I got out of it without hearing it very many times. So forgive me if that is not correct, but that's what I heard. The second movement, Allegretto, Quasi Andantino, has a song for the outer sections and a folk dance in the middle section. It includes the musette-like drone effects. I love those. Um, beloved by composers who want to represent the European countryside. Okay, so you'll hear the bass droning occasionally. It's sort of like a country dance sort of um, feeling. In the third movement, Allegro Molto Vivace, fast folk dance melody offset by slower song-like melody. There's a fugato in the middle section, which means it starts like a fugue with uh, different voices uh, imitating each other, but then goes off in a different direction than a fugue entirely. Um, Hadland's tempering, this is the pianist, of his uh, volume in the middle section sets off the violin well and pulls on the heart. Okay, this is a uh, th this this piece. Um, the, the folk the folk tunes in it are very highly appealing. This is this is a work that's easy to like on a first listen. Um, this music was composed in cold climes, but it really warmed me up. Like I really needed that in the summer. Maybe I should have listened to it in the winter. But there you go. I'll have to save this disc for the winter. I liked it a lot. I will be returning to it. So recommended. All three of my recordings are, this week are recommended by me, including Ranitsky, too. That's your choice. That's our choice, really. But, yeah. yeah. It was a lucky pick in the beginning. Yeah. It's been fruitful. Yeah, I like this one, too. Um, I, uh, again, Nordic program. That draws me in. I like that. I like all of these Nordic composers. Um, yeah. Especially, uh, we're both big fans of uh, Nielsen. So whenever I can get a Nielsen composition... On a recording, yeah. I want to check it out. And, and then here, we're both big fans of Rautavara too, aren't we? I like Rautavara. Yeah. And then uh, I didn't know Sinding at all, so that was new to me. But I enjoyed the piece. I thought uh, Delaney's, uh, yeah, he's he's a real youngster, only twenty. I mean, he's just coming up, but he's got you know this fabulous technique. Maybe sometimes he's a bit uh, uh, too enthusiastic. Uh, you know, he he's doesn't have a lot of restraint uh, it's but overall it's mostly lovely <laughs> lovely playing kind of like most uh 20 year olds i guess yeah yeah, yeah. you know so that whatever they do given on the exuberance <laughs> is uh there uh but I like, I like hearing it i guess at my uh middle age now you know because i'm like oh i remember that <laughs> you know yes it's uh at our age it's hard to be really enthusiastic about anything that's not completely <laughs> new it's there yeah, let somebody else do it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the program, and uh, I, I liked uh, Hudlin's piano, and the, the uh, interplay between the two is really good. The program yeah, is good. These two should stick together. Yeah, they're, they're, they're both they're, very good. They together. have a good synergy here, and um, I mean, I think this Nordic repertoire should be mined more deeply, and if that's the direction he wants to go, I be all in favor of it i'd like to hear more of this it's uh you know overall very enjoyable uh emotionally satisfying and uh they find you know the sort of expressive qualities inside of that and you can go deeper and deeper into this repertoire uh it should be explored more deeply and uh, this one's really enjoyable and yeah, it's an 20, ideal introduction to this repertoire, too, yeah, if you're interested. At 20 years old, he's got a big future ahead of him, a huge technique and a good emotional expression. And mm. uh, yeah, let's hear more. Let's hear volume tools, two, yeah. three, and um, Great even more. Great sense of melody, too. And, and stick with this uh, 
sort of uh, Scandinavian composers. I it's, it's sort of one of my f- favorite regions. I, I feel that like their music captures the geography and uh, sort of uh, landscapes and moods and uh, other things of that region. And uh, I, I I get lots of visual images from this music, and I love the melodies uh, from all of these composers, especially Nielsen. Um, you know, we we love the Nielsen symphonies. I also have a few recordings of his lesser played pieces and piano music and things yeah. too. So I think you know the, his repertoire can be explored a lot more. And I'm really glad that uh, you know younger yeah, players recomm- are are interested in that. So. Yeah, I want to recommend the the Nielsen symphonies. There are six of them to listeners. Oh, yeah, they're especially all great. number four, which is my favorite. Yeah, but they're all pretty great. Yeah, um, six is a harder five and six are, are harder kind of mm. uh, nuts to crack, but they're still great. I mean, I like them. Yeah. But number four is really powerful. It's just fantastic, and so it's, it's a symphony for our time too. I think. I think so. Um, subtitled "The Un- Inextinguishable," he wrote it during World War One, and it's kind of about how life would always go on. It's a, it's a very optimistic work, and it has some. It doesn't sound like life will always go on at some parts of the symphony, but it wins out in the end. Really great and very uplifting. So if you're feeling down, give that a listen. I will recommend the uh, San Francisco Symphony conducted by Herbert, Herbert Blomstedt on the yeah. Decca re- label because it's a really great. Those are the uh, standards on those. You can't go wrong yeah, those with those the, recordings. Um, those are the ones that, you know, that kind of really locked me into this piece. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, but I think, you know, Nielsen recorded, he he was a versatile composer. He recorded a lot of uh, yeah. other instrumental works and things, which you don't get to hear very often. I have a couple recordings of uh, each of those, um, but I think, yeah. The three great sort concertos, of, I know that. Yeah, um, I, I think yeah. it would be great if uh, up-and-coming players on different instruments would highlight those and, uh, you know, find what's really unique about them and uh, bring them back to the forefront. Uh, I think his music is really satisfying and interesting. So I want to hear more of it. No, we could go, we could go on about like, um, Scandinavian composers. We also like, um, uh, Nielsen's, um, yeah, the guy who came after Nielsen, uh, Von Hombo. Von Hombo. Yeah. His, um, his symphonies are, are great. Yeah, symphonies. it's really funny. They've only been recorded once, as far as I know, by Owen Orwell Hughes, and the oh, who was it? Aarhus Symphony Orchestra, Aarhus, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. And um, boy, these the the thing is, they've only been recorded that one time, and it was like discovering something amazing that you would never heard of. And yeah. yeah, no one's recorded them again. So no. all of you out there can discover this amazing music if you like. Go to your um. You know, Hombo, H-O-L-M-B-O-E. Uh, listen to Symphony Number no. 5, I'll recommend. That's a good place to start. Um, and uh, prepare to be amazed. This is really fantastic, powerful music. It's really, yeah. really great. And he has brass works, too, like brass quintet and uh, yeah. things, too, that, that don't get recorded I think he was enough. the first time that I ever heard, like, the trumpet and organ together because he, he wrote yeah. a brass quintet, and then he wrote a trumpet and organ work, which was kind of haunting. It wasn't as nice as the... Um, the ones on the uh, recording we heard today. And they sound really good on Dolly speakers. So I Dolly, bet they do. Dolly, come on. Yeah, there you go. We'll be happy to uh, feature a Dolly commercial uh, in yeah. uh, the podcast. So you, you don't even have to pay us. You can just send us some speakers. Yeah, just give me another set. I've got <laughs> pay, two, pay, I've got two sets of speakers. your speakers here already. Yeah. <laughs> come on. Ready for the upgrade. Number three. 
right. All right. So All that's right. the classical program for this week. And, and it, yeah, uh, very extensive. Here we go. Extensive. On to that's jazz. Right. On to jazz. And now, I've been uh, looking forward to this because one of these I really got turned on by. I oh, liked okay. it a lot. Yeah, I think well, you can guess which one it is, too. Yeah, I know which one it is, and that was the yeah. wild card. Uh, but first, uh, this one I saw coming out on uh, Smoke Sessions Records, which uh, we featured a few uh, uh, discussions of their pieces we, so we, far. We try to get them in a lot because they sound really good. They sound oh, good. always sound and, great. Uh, I believe they're all analog recordings uh, that they do there. Um, but if you read the history of Smoke and how they sort of came about to start recording uh, at the beginning, the live music that they were featuring uh, at the uh, Smoke Club and then decided it was worth capturing and then sort of built a record label around that. It's an interesting story. And they have a lot of uh, great players there, including uh, Michael Adon, uh, hmm. a regular at Smoke. And uh, right. we featured uh, Vincent Herring recently and uh, some other great players, Peter Bernstein, and um, oh, we've done a couple Smoke records here. And uh, this is uh, one of the regular featured players, uh, Mr. Oren Evans, the uh, pianist here. And uh, so this is his uh, newest release called Magic of Now. And this uh, features Emmanuel Wilkins, a young 23-year-old alto sax player, uh, Vincent Archer on bass and uh, the uh, well-known drummer Bill Stewart. Yeah, I want to mention before you go into this, uh, Oren Evans has kind of made news lately by being the replacement pianist in The Bad Plus. Is that right? Uh, or, I'm not sure. Or a piano trio. He replaced who? God, I knew. I know this because it was like big news at the time. Ethan Iverson left. Okay? He had been their longtime pianist and people were big fans of this um this trio because they had been together for 20 years and mm. so every time they played they had a kind of sort of um you know they their minds kind of locked in and oh, people started okay. really get into how they played off each other so when Iverson finally left it was like a big deal because um you know, who, who would replace him and it was in fact Evans I'm pretty sure or an Evans okay. the current bed plus pianist you know but I know that he has his own yeah. big band uh, group too uh, right, I so they always get nominated for Grammys. That's why I know them. Yeah, because <laughs> right. I hear them every year. So I've really gotten into his playing. I I quite like it. And uh, the thing about him is that uh, what I should say is uh, he is he's not a uh, a player who hogs the spotlight. You know, as you'll see on this recording, he really opens it up, especially to sh uh, showcase uh, Wilkins's alto playing. And uh, he's very much happy to sort of hang in the background, even though he's the leader on this session. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so he, he's a bit, um, I don't want to say reticent, but uh, he, he, and even in, in the pieces, he drops out when he feels like he's not adding uh, too much to what's going on. Um, and, you know, so he's, he's very much uh, uh, musician's musician uh, and that he's uh, not really, uh, seeking to uh, monopolize the playing, but really thinking musically what's going on here. And uh, so here we've got uh, m mainly a recording that uh, features originals by Evans and Wilkins, a balance between. But we start out uh, with uh, a piece that's kind of a, uh, 
a joining of two pieces, one an original composition by uh, Bill Stewart called Mina, and then a Mulgrew Miller tune called The Eleventh Hour, and they're sort of stitched together here. And uh, it begins with a tight drum groove uh, to start, and then bass phrases and sparse chords by Evans add in. And Wilkins comes in with a melody uh, with a very kind of light sound. You get a sense for uh, his alto sound right from the start here. Evans plays a solo with a lot of space, using rhythm to build it up. See, Wilkins has a rather tart tone here, and his solo brings in more and more intense harmonic lines as the intensity builds. Listen carefully on this recording to Stewart's drum work. It's very subtle, and he has really great cymbal work. Uh, he's really a master of texture in his drumming. Things cool down with the sparse piano chords that come in again, and then Wilkins returns to the melody, and they transition to another new melody. Then this is where the tune changes over uh, to the uh, Mulgrew Miller tune. And uh, Wilkins blows intensely over the drums with occasional sparse chords by Evans, uh, and then the bass kind of drops out for a while. He really builds it up into a wailing sax frenzy, and the bass comes back in to join the drummings, and then uh, Evans drops out a bit again before returning. Wilkins keeps pushing the intensity uh, with a riff that he repeats and then really deconstructs and uh, works into something new. Then Evans takes an exploratory solo over a repeating bass figure, and drums come in for a while until the bass starts walking again. There's lots of jagged figures and interesting intervals, but he always keeps a lot of space. Uh, Evans uses space a lot in his playing. And Stewart takes a little drum uh, time here before the ending melody riff. So you get the sort of uh, feeling of this recording. These guys haven't played together before, but they have a really good kind of communication sense, and they don't stick to you know, strict compositional patterns, they're really able to sort of free themselves up with how things are going and keep things uh, spontaneous and uh, sort of open in the structures. Uh, the second tune is Libra. This is an Evans original. It's got a nice piano opening of building chords and repeated figures. There's some cymbal crashes that come in uh, before the Sax comes in and doubles the melody in spots with the piano. It's a catchy and uplifting theme. Evans takes the first solo. His playing is very rhythmic and accented, and he adds some wide-spaced uh, right-hand chords. Then they bring the melody back, and Wilkins adds some sort of uh, bee-like, as in uh, bumblebee, trills, while Evans uh, jams out a bit and the melody returns softly and fades. Number three is The Poor Fisherman, a Wilkins original. On this one, the piano and sax come in together and a rather delicate melody. It's in a free kind of time flow. The bass joins in eventually. There's some very restrained drum textures by Stewart, which he's really good at. Wilkins starts exploring and then Evans disappears for a while, as he does sometimes when he hmm. feels like there's enough music being played. He returns to add complementary figures to the sax. Then Evans has a, his own solo that includes some kind of interesting light staccato phrases. He likes to emphasize his touch, uh, which I like a lot. And they end with a short melody phrase together. It's kind of a restrained composition and uh, performance that's kind of nice. 
Uh, fourth tune is another Evans tune. It's called uh, Matt. Uh, Matt. This is dedicated to his two sons. So a really swinging post-bop tune. It's got some twists and abrupt stops to keep you on your toes as you're listening to it. Evans takes the first solo and he stretches out a bit, showing some longer lines. And Wilkins comes in next. His lines are really fluid and lyrical on this one. And Evans adds some well-punctuated backing chords to kind of cheer him on. Then the piano and sex trade some more harmonically free sections uh, before it gets a little bit softer with Wilkins backing Evans with some longer lines, uh, long tones as it comes to a close. Uh, the fifth tune is called Levels, also by Wilkins. The sax intro uh, that's solo, it brings in the melody that's kind of constructed of interval jumps. And this is a tune that's in 5-4. Uh, uh, so uh, it's a little unusual time signature, but Wilkins really starts a solo swing smoothly over this uh, key, this uh, rhythm signature. And then Evans keeps the interval idea going in his backing chords uh, behind the sax. Then he builds into some more dissonant clusters of tones as Wilkins' lines explore the harmony and to the uh, sort of outreaches of the chords. And then Evans' solo starts with some kind of fast runs himself, but then he hits on a one note repeating idea and he develops this a lot in the middle part of the solo. They return kind of a little bit more quietly to the interval based melody to finish it off. Uh, number six, another Wilkins tune called Mama Loves. <laughs> and again, Wilkins plays a sax solo opening. The rhythm comes in behind with a swing beat on the cymbals and uh, Evans gives kind of a bouncing uh, accompaniment to the melody, but then he drops out for a bit. When he comes back in, they really start swinging on this one. Uh, Wilkins plays a lot of fast double time figures in his solo, and he gets some high register wailing in on this one. Uh, Evans brings in a solo himself, and he's swinging and relaxed, and he adds some really uh, monk-like uh, lines in this one. Uh, this tune is rather like monk-like in its composition style, and he brings it to a nice climax. And the final tune is a kind of contrast. This is a ballad tune by Evans called Dave. And uh, this is really an extremely gentle treatment here, and especially uh, the drumming, Stewart's brushes and cymbals, they're incredibly light. You've got to listen carefully uh, to see what's going on here. And Evans creates a really pretty space uh, with his chords throughout. And uh, Wilkins is restrained as well, playing sort of light phrases to accompany uh, what's going on in the harmony here. Uh, at one point, Evans has a few kind of sparse, more energetic lines that you think are going to break out into something, but they don't. They come right back down. And then at the very end, he has this sort of tinkling little uh, hmm. outro phrase. Uh, it's all about you know, the ambiance on this tune uh, that shows this sort of compositional style and sort of rubato uh, playing technique. Um, so if you like modern jazz, it's kind of an exciting recording. There's a lot of freedom uh, in the compositions. They don't really stick, you know, to standard uh, format of the tune and, and who's going to play what. It depends on what's actually happening. And if there's enough music going on, the piano or someone else will drop out. Um, you know, to let the other musician do his thing harmonically. 
but the interplay between the musicians is really good. And it's all original compositions here. Uh, Evans is not the kind of player to overplay. Uh, as I said, he drops out when uh, there's enough uh, music going on and he gives a, a lot of space for the young Wilkins to stretch out and develop his solos. So there's a lot of freedom in the arrangements of the pieces. And if you listen carefully, you'll see the uh, nuances of Stewart's drumming, especially his cymbal touches are really uh, nice and subdued. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't, I like drummers who are subtle rather than uh, overplaying. And that's the way Stewart is. He creates a great groove, but he goes largely unnoticed except in his subtle temperatures and uh, really nice grooving beat. Uh, so this is a nice uh, modern jazz uh, album with a lot of spontaneity uh, between players who haven't worked together before, but obviously have a really good rapport. And uh, it highlights uh, Wilkins' uh, up-and-coming voice, only 23 years old, shows a lot of promise here, and the maturity of uh, Evans' piano work, uh, which has some space in it, uh, restraint, a nice piano touch, and some uh, unique harmonizations. And uh, yeah, overall, uh, kind of creative and satisfying recording, I thought. Yeah, you're... Um realization that he keeps dropping out kind of when there's enough music going on made me think oh so that's why the uh the bad plus liked him because it's a it's a very the the, the their whole sound has a lot to do with balance so i think yeah. it um he, he's probably a good choice for replacement you might not have the uh the telepathic powers that iverson had from playing with them for so long but he's he's sort of the the type of musician who would fit in with that ensemble um so i'm really only familiar with um evans is playing from as being a band leader because he did like these kind of bigger orchestral recordings so this was interesting for me to hear um it, it it's 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 a record that it's going to take a little time to absorb i think i find it kind of hard to talk about it was uh interesting i liked it um I uh, I liked his um the the thing that stood out for me was the very last track where he's right. playing piano on his he's he's got this really pretty sort of um accompaniment going to what he um to what's being played on top it um Dave it's called Dave yeah, yeah. um somehow his the poignancy of that the the gentle gentleness of his playing kind of stood out for me and that made me want to go back and hear the whole thing again because I was I feel like his 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 quality was caught in that very brief yeah uh, piece and the rest of it is kind of like um you know playing with the whole him playing with the whole ensemble so i just wanted to kind of it it almost redefined the whole album for me but another <laughs> i didn't go back to hear it again though i'm going to do it in the future because of the next album that we're going to talk about cuz i was right. so turned on by this oh. but i just kept putting it on <laughs> again and again you know now I, mm. I I I don't want to before we get into that I just want to say I don't want to just dismiss this because I like I thought this was well worth listening to Orrin Evans the magic of now um, give it a listen I think it I think it uh, invites repeated listenings too because I think there's quite a bit in it yeah it's one of these things that you know it's original compositions and then uh, there's uh, you know, musicians who haven't worked together a lot before and so they're discovering each other but they have the maturity to actually uh, pay attention to each other and the new material. And so you're getting fresh material and a fresh interaction uh, at a high level. Um, and then 
you know, you have to dis- if you don't know Evans is playing, you have to sort of uh, discover that. And me too, just like Mike said, I sort of have listened to his big band recordings, and so he's, you know, a, a much uh, sort of uh, smaller role in terms of the overall ensemble. So I was trying to figure out, you know, his uh, larger part uh, in this, uh, you know, quartet type of format as being a composer too. So, and since he is a restrained kind of player, uh, it sort of, you know, takes extra attention to figure out what his personality is uh, in here, especially because he likes to sit out (laughs) a lot of the time uh, when other things are going on. And, but I like that quality about his playing and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he sort of surprised me at what he would do or not do depending on what the other players were doing. Um, But yeah. And and it's an, an, a lot to listen to here. Uh, Wilkins shows a lot of promise. Uh, he's got a lot of technique and uh, fluidity. And then uh, Stewart's drumming is also very textured. And uh, so yeah, I, I like oh. subtle drumming. So there's a lot to pick up on that here. Oh, by the way, I'm looking at his at the now the bad pluses um, um, Wikipedia page. And it turns out that on March 13th, 2021, the Bad Plus uh, said that Ord Aarons would be leaving the band to pursue music under his own name. So he's oh. no longer in the Bad Plus. He was in them since 2017. He didn't oh, okay. stay very long. So nice. we don't know where that uh, ensemble from Minnesota is going to go at this point. Yeah, I don't wow. think they're going to get another pianist. I think they're... So he's no longer in the Bad Plus. Uh, that's the uh, okay. that's news from this year. I wouldn't have known anyway. So, <laughs> you know, there you go. Well, that's how it works out, I guess. Um, All right. So, yeah, so this next one uh, was kind of a wild card. Uh, as I said, yeah. there's a lot of jazz releases out there that only have one track available, and so I'm kind of waiting to be able to hear the full thing. And, uh, you know, I've liked to sort of search uh, out there and keep uh, what we pick uh, very international and widespread uh rather than focusing on just what's going on in the U.S. jazz or on any certain label. Although, you know, we always come back to Smoke Session because they've got some really cool New York Center players there. But I want, I want to keep it uh, open. So we've featured, uh, you know, a lot of European jazz, uh, uh, Scandinavian players, Italian players and whatnot. Uh, and so uh, when I saw this one, I thought, uh, oh, I don't know anything about uh, this player and uh, let's check this out. And uh, I'm glad we did because uh, this turned out to be uh, something that I really enjoyed. Uh, Yeah, me too. Right away too, right from the first two tracks. So we've got uh, the Spanish pianist, uh, Albert Sanz, and also uh, Spanish bassist. And uh, as we'll find out, accordionist, uh, Javier Colina, and uh, this is uh, their second, I believe, uh, collaboration. And this one's Singha on the Yokali label. Uh, so we've got just piano and bass here. And uh, the theme is that they're playing uh, compositions by uh, uh, Brazilian composers. Uh, yeah. However, <laughs> the uh, musical, uh, or rather the album notes and 
documentation are very sparse that you can't find anywhere on the internet. Uh, so luckily, yeah. I was- there, there is a CD of this coming out at the end of September, by oh. the way. It's only available digitally now, so I guess yeah. we'll have to wait. And uh, the notes, uh, any information I could find was uh, only in Spanish, so I had to have it uh, translated. And it, it didn't even include the composer information. Fortunately, there's a nice concert on YouTube of uh, these two playing together. And uh, they- in the uh, on-screen documentation, uh, give us some of the uh, documentation of the composers, which uh, is kind of important uh, here. Uh, but otherwise, you won't be able to find that online, uh, which is a shame because uh, I think what not only is their playing really wonderful and their sort of interplay and communication, but these compositions are really wonderful. And that's what makes uh, the basis of, uh, you know, the improvisations here really nice and uh well and, and sense is uh, i believe he's on the uh, faculty of uh, berkeley music college in boston now and he's a really subtle player this he he is not a show-off at all um and uh you know he's really just serves the melody and what's going on so he's an understated uh player um but uh that's what adds a lot of the charm here. Uh, so, uh, including what I can find out of the uh, composition uh, information on here, uh, the first track, uh, the title track, uh, Singha, this is uh, Huayo Basco and Chico Barak uh, composition. Uh, it starts out with a descending minor riff on the piano, which sets a really melancholy mood as the bass joins in. And in your mind, you'll sort of fill in the bossa nova percussion yeah. because uh, their rhythmic uh, sort of uh, uh, mind melt is so strong that uh, the percussion is just there in your mind. Sounds has a really gentle touch on this melody. And the bass articulation and the tone pumps this tune along under the piano. It's a really relaxed uh, bass solo on here, too. Sons comes back for a little solo. Uh, very nice chords in this tune. And very superb, understated playing, which sets the theme for the rest of this recording. Yeah, you uh, had said that your mind kind of puts the uh, Brazilian yeah. per, you know, bossa nova percussion in. So your mind is actually adding sort of the sunshine to this rather yeah. uh, melancholy piece. It's kind of fun, a funny little trick. Yeah, I think he, he that, knows we're going to do that. It's <laughs> that know? triste kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, it's like sad and happy. It's it's like being sad time. on the beach, you know. <laughs> yeah, sad on the beach. <laughs> you got all these these hot bikini clad girls walking by you. you and they know, walk by you. Yeah. yeah, she looks not at me. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> number I two. I smile, but she doesn't see. She yeah. doesn't see. Me, yeah. <laughs> two is uh, Cravo y Canela, uh, really rhythmic bass line. Nice staccato piano to get this rhythmic tune going. The interplay between the piano and bass is really great. Uh, Sansa solo is a mix of melody and chords. Kind of reminded me of Vince Guaraldi on this uh, one a mm. lot. Uh, and Kalina plays a really no nice uh, bass solo here. Really good interaction between the two. Uh, three, uh, I don't know how to pronounce these Brazilian titles. Verbachios. Yeah, I don't have any Portuguese, but uh, Vibrations, I guess, by Jacobo uh, Bandolim. It's a very pretty minor melody, but in a danceable tempo. 
Uh, it turns major with some nice dominant progressions and twists. It's a very good uh, melodic line. The yeah. bass solo's first. Uh, and then Sons' solo is really subtle. He's got some pretty grace notes in interval figures with spaces in between. And then it comes up to a nice major chord ending. A uh, really nice composition. I like this tune a lot. Yeah, I'm going to stick my neck out and say it's pronounced Vibrasoes. Vibrasoes could be, I don't know, I'm guessing. (laughs) I don't don't speak Portuguese. (laughs) Anyway, you're going to get some good vibrations from that one. Yeah. Uh, Four, uh, Dolce da Coco. This is a nice swinging beat here. It's actually, you know, more of a jazz swing uh, that's outlined by Colina's bass playing. Uh, Sans has a nice light touch. Uh, Even with his staccato notes, uh, a really nice... He just has a nice piano touch. That's what his style is about. Yeah. He plays lyrically, he hints at some bluesy ideas also on this one before Colina plays a kind of melodic bass solo and they give the melody another turn uh, between a soft ending. A really subtle one on this one uh, for uh, track four here. Uh, five is uh, Cantiga, I guess, which just means song. And this is a composition... Uh, Cristóvão de Silva and Chico Barak. This is a really kind of pensive intro that transforms into a more passionate dance beat and drives the very pretty minor melody. Uh, Sands out some nice tones up in the higher register, and then he goes down lower in the bridge of the tune. And Kalina plays a solo with some interesting rhythms. And then uh, Sands plays a really wonderful solo that he goes through different registers while highlighting the rhythms from the melody. Uh, really nice track here. Uh, six, uh, Bayao. It's a nice tune. Uh, I, I guess that means uh, dance. Uh, yeah, so this, you got a song followed by a dance. Yeah, this, this tune just <laughs> invites you to get up and dance. It's uh, Latin and bluesy at the same time. And uh, Sanders plays a solo that really explores the harmonies. Uh, his left hand is also doing some really interesting things in here. Uh, and he carries the left hand over to back up Colina's bass solo, which is very nice here too. Uh, Colina's bass is always really melodic and uh, rich here. Uh, there's some great subtle syncopation that keeps the tune moving to a groove. You don't need any drums at all to do that here. And there's some really nice descending chord lines uh, to the ending. Uh, track seven is called Hinte uh, Humide which I think is called the humble folk. And here we've got a little vocal uh, cameo uh, by uh, Jorge Drexler, which just hmm. sounds like a strange combination of uh, names here. That's, uh, the, that's the world we live in. Yes. Um, but I like the um, vocal style. It's a kind of a very vulnerable uh, up-close vocal and uh, it's backed by some sparse fills by Sons. Really gentle bass solo, too. And Sons takes a short solo section that shows this nice touch before the vocal comes back in. Oh, by uh, the way, go, going back to the previous track, Baiao mm-hmm. is apparently a um, a place in Portugal. It's actually a city name or a, oh. uh, you know, a municipality oh. in Porto. Okay, so... Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Let's go. Unless they have high taxes yeah. or something there. If, you know. if there's music like that there, I'm, I'm all over it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, eight, Juao y Maria. Mm-hmm. It's another uh, Chico Buarake tune. And here, Colina 
sets his bass down. At least he does on the YouTube video. And he picks up the accordion for a little bit of waltzing. And, uh, oh, yeah, this is uh, really nice uh, kind of uh, that kind of wabi-sabi, as Japanese say. Yeah. It's kind of happy and sad, uh, delicate touch uh, on Sanza's solo here. And the uh, accordion adds a nice swell uh, to the melody. On the video, he's got a honer, and he's uh, squeezing it into the microphone. And uh, I don't think they play this tune. It's a different tune in the video, but uh, I assume he plays the same instrument on it. Uh, yeah, it's just that nice kind of, um, you know, somewhat sad but intriguing uh, kind of uh, South American uh, hmm. style. Uh, and then uh, track nine, Conchal do Sal. It's a Milton Nascimento tune, yeah. uh, who is uh, one of the more famous Brazilian composers. This one has a really implied samba beat. Uh, you can pick it up uh, the way the melody is played. The harmonies are interesting uh, on this tune. And uh, Sanz has a really nice upbeat solo. And Colina comes in with a subtle bass solo. And Sanz is backing behind that is lovely and then it emerges into something new uh, up to a pretty ending uh, so a nice uh, treatment of an ascimento tune and uh the last track uh i have no idea how to pronounce this one but Ojote das meninas i think that's it i think it's close as close as close enough. Guess, uh, for sure by yeah. luis gonzaga uh this one's actually got kind of a bluesy uh intro to it and uh bass joins in a really great tune, uh, groove on this is swinging actually here, and uh, what a great melody on this tune! Oh, this is a really nice melody. Um, yeah. good send off, uh, yeah. Kalina adds a nice bluesy and rhythmic solo here, but it ends suddenly, and you want more, but you're always going to want more if you hear an album like this. Um, I'm really happy that I found this album. Uh, the tune selection is lovely, Sans is really you know his personality is very understated with his playing. So he's got a gentle touch. So he doesn't show off. If you watch his playing, I'll, I'll throw in the YouTube link on this one. Uh, he, he, his hands are really interesting to watch because sometimes he plays with almost perfectly straight out fingers, but uh, it looks like he's not even trying uh, when he plays. Uh, but you, you'll see his uh, locked in communication with uh Colina uh, on this one. And he always leaves you wanting a little bit more, uh, which is always nice. Um, so I like the program. The The tunes are, you know, they're very, they're Brazilian, which is interesting being played by Spanish players, but they have a lot of variety, including both swing and, you know, samba, bossa nova kind of feels to them. And then we have this uh, vocal recording recording and then also the accordion tune that sort of adds something extra in here so i you know highly recommended for a relaxed and kind of introspective listening section and i think sans is uh, uh someone to really uh explore uh, he has recorded in a lot of different uh formats and he's out there but um uh, i think you know he's a player that i really want to investigate more 
Yeah, the thing I love most about music, I think, is finding an album that just really you didn't expect it to, you didn't know anything about it, and it just knocks you out, you know? Yes. And it happens to me less and less as I get older, because I guess we've heard a lot, you know, but there's still got to be loads of music out there that I would love if I didn't, if I knew it. But, you know, I just find it less and less. And this is one of those records. I think uh, it didn't, I can't say it knocked me out. It was like too quiet but it has everything i love about most about music in it one of them is subtlety the kind of thing that kind of you you have to listen closely to and on repeated listens you're just noticing all these these other sort of things that didn't really pop out the first time you heard them um so i was really i was really intrigued by this whole record i'm really uh i'm glad you found it too (laughs) it's uh it might be one of my favorite albums of the year i love like the Brazilian rhythms and the, the yeah. chords, you know, the bossa nova chords stuff, they just make me feel so good right away. And the record, you know, the playing, the ensemble playing between the piano and the bass was just, you know, fantastic and almost like, you know, they, they really sort of mind melded on this. Mm-hmm. So put me in mind of, um, you know, Piranunzi and uh, Fauna's Bank again, yeah, like yeah. one of the first records we did. Um, that, that combination seems to go well together. Basses seem to do very well with piano, alone with pianists. They, uh, they complement them well. Um, yeah, this is a record that invites repeated listenings just for the subtlety. And it's also very quiet, chilled out, good for late night listening. It's 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 beautiful. I just loved it. And I just kept listening to it again and again. So I had to take myself away from it to listen to the rest of the music this week, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, but I was happy that happened. It was uh, yeah, good it was, feeling. It was nice. I mean, the, the two... I, I, I'm really surprised that I haven't heard of Kalina before because you know he seems like a really mature bassist with lots yeah. of experience in uh, jazz playing and also sounds too. And then their interplay, but the, the selection of material, these tunes are, I mean, they really chose great tunes by these composers. And so the strength of the material is also uh, deeply satisfying too. Um, and, you know, then, you know, you know, just being the two of them, as a duo, um, it gives them lots of space to work with things. And uh, yeah, it's just a, a lovely interchange here. So you should definitely check this out. And this will definitely be going into the hard copy CD collection when it finally comes out yeah. on September 30th. Why are you making me wait? You, oh. you, you would have to have an absolutely cold and hardened heart to not like uh, yeah. <laughs> this album, yeah. I would have to say. You'd have to it's be a, someone small, who enjoyed it. It's a small record label, so I can't be yeah. mean because it probably takes time to yeah. get it manufactured. Stuff, if, you don't like, doing it. if you don't like mm-hmm. this, you must be a person who doesn't, you know, who would like to see, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I know. I, I was going to say something. Don't, don't give me a bad that. image here at the at the end of this beautiful. No, recording. no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we want to yeah. go away feeling good. That's right. That's right. Yeah, especially after this last that last track. It's, it's yeah. really nice. Yeah, you're going to like that. Yeah. All right, and there we are. That's right. Episode episode twenty five. And the hits keep calls for coming. a drink. I, I just you know, I finished this entire bottle. Or did you here. drink all that coconut uh, champagne yeah, there? Yeah, I have. I got to tell you this. I had this. Um, yeah, Bar Royal um, Champagne. It's it's sort of a sparkling wine. I don't think it's champagne, mm. but it had a kind of champagne cork in it. So I went down to get some white wine because I'm in a summer, uh, summer cold mode. booze mood mode. I don't really go for the hard liquor in the summer so much. Um, Russ, Russ, on the other hand, is sticking with Old Reliable, the official drink of the uh, adult music podcast. Um 
which is Sinab Creek, yeah. But I, Creek I did have an Italian, yeah. an Italian wine earlier in the evening. So okay, so I got the I got a French wine for next week because uh, we're gonna have like a a, a French uh, special, I think. So I had to be ready for that. Well, actually, that was supposed to be for tonight, but then the guy at the the liquor store said, "Oh, we have this thing," and it was like this Bar Royal, and it was green apple flavored sparkling wine. I was like, "Ah, eh, not so interested." But then I looked at the shelf below, and it had like the same thing, but with coconut flavoring. And being a big tropical loving person, I had to go for that. And I have to say, it's only three point nine percent alcohol, thankfully, because I drank the whole bottle. Oh. <laughs> I just opened it, and now it's all gone. It's kind of it's a it had that That's nice a, coconut taste to it. It's yeah, a little sweet. That's like a lady drink, really. But you know, yeah. But three point nine, three point nine. I'm enough of a man to uh, to exp- you know kind of show my 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 more feminine side, shall we say? <laughs> well, from my uh, maybe my experienced drinker. A perspective looking at that bottle, I'd, rec- I'd reckon you drank like, uh, you know, maybe two beers, two maybe, and a half beers yeah. from that whole bottle. So I think you're fine. It's kind of a nice, got a nice sort of a yeah. white coconutty look to it. You know, the label. Yeah. It looked With really those palm refreshing. trees in the back there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little good. sweet though. It's a little sweet. I mean, I like because it's, co- you know, coconut is sweet, but you know. I think that's I almost like it. a breakfast drink. That one there, yeah. You can put it in my cereal. Like you can have an omelet and that, and then you could, you know, be ready <laughs> oh, to go right, jog the on brunch. the beach. Yeah, it's having yeah. So, having like a, it's a Sunday brunch drink. Yeah. Hmm. Before you yeah. go, listen to the Baroque, and then uh, meet the beach volleyball team or something like that. Yeah. Right. The brunch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, this has been episode twenty-five of Adult Music podcast with music for the adult mind and we'll be back again next week with episode 26 uh if you haven't checked out our Bernitsky interview with daniel bernardson and merrick stilek the uh archive mastermind and conductor of the recording we talked about today make sure you go back and check out interview three and uh, also go back and check out our discussion on volume one of the Renitsky project. There's going to be more to come. Exciting music uh, being rediscovered from the classical era. And as always, uh, please be sure to like, and also give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to. If you want to contact us directly, that's the adult music podcast, all one word at gmail.com and send us your comments or any questions and we'll be happy to uh, get back in touch with you and until next time uh, have a good week and we'll be back again next week with more music so have a good week and we'll see you in the next episode